seated. We, we are uh, checking our mail. We are to give heed to what the Spirit is saying to the churches in the seven letters of Christ to the churches of Asia in Revelation as we come now to chapter 3 and uh, read that uh, missive to the city of Sardis under the heading, Don't Die in Your Sleep. The verb to watch is also that which is to wake up. And uh, so it is a call in both senses for the church to awaken and to watch and uh, to strengthen those things which remain. Hear now the letter of Christ to the church in Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these things says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfected before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will blot out, I will not blot out, rather, his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Our Father, with open heart, we desire once again to turn to your word and to hear such words of Christ to churches, even as ours, local congregations in a variety of states with a variety of needs that received good and critical counsel. So we pray that you would apply even this word according to our need. And we pray that even though in so many ways we do slumber and sleep, may such words revive and strengthen and make us more, all the more watchful that we should be uh, a people at all times zealous for good works and ready to meet our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, a, na- a woman named uh, Judy Rivers went to open a new bank account. The clerk was entering her personal information, and everything seemed to be going smoothly until the woman at the desk stopped suddenly, uh, frowned as she gazed at the computer. That's odd, she said. There, There seems to be some issue regarding your Social Security number. With a skeptical glance, she arose and disappeared into the back room. After too many minutes, she came back with the branch manager, Ma'am, the manager pronounced, your social security number was deactivated in 2008 due to death. Incredulous, she rose from her chair. You're you're trying to tell me I've been dead for two years and no one bothered to tell me? (laughs) I was grieved to note that some 1,200 and Uh, excuse me, 12,200 U.S. citizens every year are declared dead by the Social Security Administration due to, quote, keystroke errors. 
Um, as annoying as that no doubt would be, it is not nearly as devastating as having Christ declare those who think they are alive, in fact, to be dead. This is not only really going on, it is one of the most important religious trends, certainly in the West and even, yes, in America today. A church that is, in fact, dead, only just realizing the fact. The Pew survey reported recently that 65% of America now claims to be Christian, down from 85% in 1990. The religiously unaffiliated, of course, have increased proportionately. The rise of the nuns, so they say, not the people that wear funny hats, but N-O-N-E, people that are unaffiliated. The secularists, of course, have been ecstatic at this news, praising the gods that they don't even think exist. The uh, utopia that John Lennon imagined in his song seems to be now right around the corner. Some Christians, of course, are uh, reading this with doom and bracing for the collapse and the end of all things. Mainline Protestant churches are unsurprisingly uh, unable unable to stop that fast decline. On the other hand, those same statistics remind us that a growing majority now of Protestants are evangelical. That is to say, we, we actually are the main line if the people that believe the historic faith. And uh, a half of all Christians now identify as uh, evangelical or born again. That is across the board, across all denominations. So my point is, what we are witnessing is not the rapid demise of Christianity, but of nominal Christianity, which kids, that means. Christianity in name only, a Christianity that has, in fact, been dead for years. Only nobody bothered to tell the church that. Uh, Even now, uh, every now and then, I should say, um, on some action movie, perhaps Star Wars, something like that, somebody's killed, and they don't actually know until they fall, right? They're fatally wounded, and then all of a sudden, they look down, and they suddenly give way when they realize what's happened. Well, that is what is going around everywhere, going on around us. And this letter to the church at Sardis is written to deliver the church from dying in its slumbers, in its sleep. Do not go gentle into that good night, wrote the poet. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And so our Lord in this letter gives such counsel. But let's begin by learning just a little about Sardis. There's a rather odd expression, which uh, you've probably not heard unless you're... um, too educated for your own good, to be as rich as Croesus, to be as rich as Croesus. Anybody ever heard that? Only the nerdiest of you, I'm sure, so you can tell me later. You don't have to admit it now. It's an old expression uh, that uh, used to be pretty regularly in English used uh, to uh, describe somebody who is unsurpassedly rich, an old expression coming from the ancient king of the city of Sardis, actually the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydda, which was there, called King Croesus. King Croesus ruled from this very famed city, uh, once the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, and it was made wealthy by the gold that flowed in its river. King Croesus was uh, doing so well that he decided that he would take on the larger Persian empire and its, uh, its emperor Cyrus the Great of biblical fame, right? After consulting the oracle of Delphi, 
to make sure that he would succeed. The oracle at Delphi had told him, King, if you cross the river Halys, you will destroy a great empire. Well, Croesus, of course, assumed that it was Cyrus's empire of the Persians that would be destroyed, but in fact, when his army was crushed, he learned that the oracle can speak out of two sides of his mouth. It was his own kingdom that was crushed. And so, after the battle, Croesus had to retreat to his hilltop fortress, sitting atop the steep cliffs, rising some 1,500 feet above the plain. That uh, fortress in uh, Sardis was thought to be completely impregnable. In fact, in the Greek world of that time, they had a saying of their own, capturing Sardis was the way of saying something that would be achieving the impossible. It's, it's really impressive. It's uh, just a, a bunch of sharp, straight cliffs that go right up. Uh, Cyrus besieged the city and offered a reward to anyone who could come up with a way of entry, but it, it did look absolutely impervious until one of the soldiers watched as, a, uh, as somebody at the fortress accidentally knocked his helmet over the wall. And uh, then he went down and he, he climbed, climbed down a bit and got his helmet and went back up. He looked at it very, very, very carefully, and he realized that there, in fact, was a way to possibly scale those cliffs. And so that uh, soldier led a few others on a very scary journey at night up what had thought to be unclimbable cliffs. And up at the top, they found a total lack of vigilance, a total lack of watchfulness on the part of the defenders who died in their sleep and the city fell to the Persians in 547 BC. And in fact, the same thing happened again 200 years later, just proving the fact if you don't remember your history, you're bound to repeat it. Sardis was besieged by one of Alexander the Great's generals. And he also ended up sending a small force up the same cliff. And once again, the, Sardinian, the Sardians were unwatchful, thinking of themselves secure. Their fortress was overthrown. Well, I, I only mention these stories to you because, of course, spiritually speaking, the Lord is warning the church that just such a thing may happen to them. Remember your history. You are also in danger of being completely overcome due to a lack of wakefulness and watchfulness. And indeed, the Lord threatens to come like a thief and overtake them by surprise unless they heed his life-giving words. We are now in the fifth of the seven letters of Revelation. We find in this letter, apparently, no threat of persecution has come against them, like at Smyrna. We find no false teaching, as at Pergamum. Uh, evidently, Satan did not consider Sardis worthy of, its spiritual, of his spiritual assault, as elsewhere. William Hendrickson comments, Sardis was a very peaceful church. It enjoyed peace, but it was the peace of the cemetery. Sardis was what we might call today a nominal church, a church in name only, a church that was, in fact, asleep and near death. Verse 1, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead in name only, nominal. The uh, members of the church professed a faith in Jesus, but in reality their hearts were cold. Now you know that it's very possible for someone who's sick unto death not yet to know what's happening. Somebody who looks healthy and feels healthy and, in fact, is harboring a deadly illness. And by the time the symptoms appear, then 
it's too late. By the time my sister learned that she had cancer, it was the very end. So in Sardis, a spiritual collapse is not evident, but it is imminent. The church had a name for faithfulness and good works. But this church that was so revered receives the most severe condemnation of any church among the seven. It is dead or about to die. Both things are said here, so you get the point. Their energy was gone, their color, their heat, almost all the life was drained away. And unlike all the other letters that we read, um, Jesus at the beginning of this letter has nothing to commend them for. It just goes right to the bad news. How did such a church with such a reputation fall into a state of near death? Jesus identifies three things in this brief letter. Uh, First, we've already mentioned it's not enough to call yourself a Christian. We are reminded here there needs to be an inward reality. Are you born anew? Jesus says, unless you're born again, you will not see, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And he introduces himself in Revelation as the one who has flame of fi- whose eyes are a flame of fire. He is the one who sees what alone he can see. Well, um, it was uh, back in the 1940s that a famous gangster in L.A. named Mickey Cohen made a profession of faith in Christ. And, uh, of course, the church, for its part, was absolutely elated to see such a conversion. And yet, as time passed, um, it became obvious that the the man didn't change his gangster lifestyle, you might say. Uh, Finally, he was confronted about this, and he, he protested, quote, You never told me I had to give up my career. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? Um... Well, some people take the name of Christian, but they are, of course, determined to be just what they were before. And uh, it's a surprise to them to learn otherwise. When Christ does change our lives, those changed lives become a tremendous testimony to those around us. And they teach the world about our redemption, a great redemption in Christ. We need many more of these stories and people, as I said this morning, standing up and telling the great works of God, what he has done. How wonderful it is to teach the world in living color about the power and the redemption and the truth of Christ. But, you know, that sword cuts both ways. Because when people of a very different color take the name of Christian, well, pretend Christianity is not only devastating to them, it's devastating to the world. I mean, who hasn't heard the number one objection that people give to becoming Christians, right? You know the church is full of hypocrites. Well, we, we do all fall very short of God's glory still, and that's true. But nominal Christians are, by definition, those who claim to know Christ without any true faith or hope or love. And they are, in fact, teaching the world a lie, that our lives are not changed or devoted to Christ, but that Christ is more of a feel-good person who is there whenever we need him. Maybe nominal Christians would uh, join a group or even attend a church regularly as long as nothing else demands their time. They don't need to prioritize the things of God if anything better comes along. Echolampadius, the Swiss reformer, said, how much more good would a, a few fervent men effect in the ministry than multitudes of lukewarm ones, right? And that actually was what happened in the Reformation. Uh, a few... A few good and fervent men 
effected a change in the world that outstripped a great multitude of lukewarm ones in the day. We must not die in our sleep. Baptism can't save us. Church membership can't save us. Attendance can't save us. Reputation can't save us. What everyone thinks of us matters nothing. Only a living faith in Jesus Christ can save anyone. And Jesus warns the church against such pretended religion. Uh, Secondly, incomplete works. Incomplete works. An interesting phrase, uh, Jesus says that uh, their works weren't perfect in my translation. If you have another, it almost certainly renders it incomplete. I think that's much clearer. I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. In other words, yeah, there was some religious activity, yes, in the church. In fact, there was enough, just enough, to convince them and others outside that they were Christians. They had a name that they were alive, and things were going on, and yet it was a very superficial a triumph of form over substance. And many today think the same way. No, uh, so often in our kind of churches, it's a dead orthodoxy, a dead orthodoxy. That is to say, people wrongly think that they are in good shape, all is well, because they have joined themselves to a body holding to correct beliefs. Well, that's very important, as we've seen in previous letters. And if we are saved by faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast, then we need to make sure that we have that cart before the horse. Uh, But there is a cart, sorry, that horse before the cart. But there is a cart, (laughs) a cart. Uh, The next verse, of course, says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or uh, again, we read later that uh, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. One missionary author writes of a plague of nominalism that's setting in now in some older churches. He says nominalism encourages a religion of spectators. What are you looking at me for? Spectators. It also breeds clericalism. Content with just watching, such Christians want religious things done to them and for them in exchange for a minimum of personal discomfort or effort, we might also add. Jesus is warning the church against their incomplete works. Wake up and see what's going on. Third, defiled garments. Defiled garments. This comes at the end. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Uh, White, by the way, is a very important word in Revelation. Um, uh, Leukos, from which we get leukemia, right? White blood cell disease. Uh, It occurs 14 times just in Revelation, for comparison, nine times in the rest of the New Testament. White, which not only celebrates victory in this book, but also purity and glory. Here, in contrast with the five, such a dead or dying church, five imperatives he gives for church revival, coupled with a warning and a promise. As I said at the beginning, uh, Sardis fell twice, twice, because its watchmen failed to watch. And its revival would begin when the Christians woke up and came alive. So the first thing that it says here is, watch, 
which as I mentioned also can be translated, wake up, as some of you probably just woke up. Uh, others of you had that in your translation to begin with, right? Uh, Christ's first command for slumbering, slumbering believers is to, to realize what's going on, to, to take to heart this analysis, this diagnosis, stage four cancer, wake up, don't die in your sleep, rage against the dying of the light. Not only are the churches overthrown when elders don't watch, we've read that elsewhere, Families are conquered when mothers and fathers are not on guard. Individuals are... It's a big difference between, most, between being mostly dead and being all dead. Yeah, this, uh, this church is virtually dead, but uh, it's only mostly dead. Uh, the fire of grace may be burning low, and yet, he says, you can blow that back into heat again. You need to strengthen that which remains, that, that pulse, however faint, that spark of devotion. You need to fan it into flames. Remember what it was like as a whole church... When you seized every opportunity to worship and to live for the Lord and work and witness for him, strengthen that which you have. Remember uh, how or what you received and heard. Your translation may vary. The Apostle Paul saying the same thing to the Colossians. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you were taught, and abounding with thanksgiving. You, you, you know what you need to do. You know. Remember what you've received and heard and put it to work. Um, so, so often it's not necessarily a new word that comes into our life. The old word comes back with power. Uh, fourth, hold fast. Hold fast. Um, a, uh, another uh, military metaphor here, uh, or to change the, the picture, the Christian life is more of a marathon than a sprint. Um, you need perseverance. You need to keep on going. And our spiritual life has a tendency to coldness and lethargy. Just like you know, if you don't keep your mind on your running, you'll, you'll start to slow down, right? Uh, our spiritual life always loses energy unless we are putting in effort. Unless there's a continual injection of, of heat and nourishment to the soul, it's going to grow gradually colder. Every Christian, I say, has this experience in daily life. And what is true in the life of the soul is true in the church as well, for a church is a community of souls. Now, we're tempted to think that things may continue without such uh, effort, but they will not. Just to maintain, just to persevere requires effort. And uh, so the military metaphor in... uh, in a day in which uh, the enemy is encroaching. Stand strong. Hold fast. Finally, fifth, uh, repent. This word summarizing all that's been said. The church needs to turn back, return to the Lord, their God, and he will receive them. So this is his prescription for a, a church in such a situation. Watch. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received and heard. Hold fast and turn back. Repent. And he does have this special encouragement to those few in the congregation who actually are awakened, who are paying attention to the letter, right? You have a few names in Sardis who are not defiled. They shall walk with me in white. Uh, Jim Boyce writes, uh, suggesting that, quote, revival begins with a few individuals who do wake up to the condition of those around them and begin to be concerned for them. 
how, how often this has happened, as I mentioned. In the days of Reformation, in the days of revival, it was not at first a great general turning to the Lord. It, it, it was a few people who had some spiritual life who uh, the Lord used to change the, the world. Yeah, you might not know this story, but in September of 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere responded to a minor economic collapse in New York by starting a prayer meeting at his Dutch Reformed Church in New York City. Um, it was a time of discouragement, not unlike that which we are in go going on now. There was a, a downturn in the economy, and uh, a lot of people were depressed. He printed a bulletin inviting businessmen to come and pray at noon. That's it. Come and pray at noon. The first meeting began with Lampier praying alone for the first half hour. But then he was joined by six men who came in and joined him for the second half. The next week, there were 20 for prayer. Three, three weeks later, there were 40. By the next spring, there were scores of similar prayer groups that had spread throughout New York and to the other boroughs and cities. And by Easter of that year, New York City had to shut down every day at noon because of the tens of thousands that were gathering for prayer with multitudes and multitudes converted to Christ. They couldn't keep the businesses open because none wanted to stay over the lunch hour, starting with the prayers of a very few awakened believers. The 1858 so-called layman's prayer revival spread throughout the whole country and resulted in hundreds of thousands of conversions to faith in Christ. Same thing, by the way, in Pyongyang, spreading to Korea, 1903, that great story I've told you recently. Same, same basic thing. Few people awakened. God set them a praying and a working. And what a great change. Well, every letter of these seven has a message about the one who is able to overcome or conquer. Um, Nike, the shoe company, named, named for this uh, same word. Um, in fact, there, was some, there were some complaints a while back because uh, Nike was emphasizing victory, victory. And they were like, you know, what, what, why is Nike emphasizing victory so much? You know, I mean, everybody competes and, you know, everybody's a winner, right? Okay, Nike means victory, okay? Um, all right. You know, uh, it's like, it's like uh, uh, saying why is the, the hamburger place emphasizing hamburgers so much? Their name? the hamburger place. Okay. Uh, Nike, victory. To him who overcomes. The one, the victor. The book of life is uh, held out here. Uh, a very important idea later in the book of Revelation. In fact, all ancient cities kept a civic register in which all the citizens of the town were recorded. And God's book similarly contains the names of all the saints of New Jerusalem. A book written before the foundation of the world. And uh, elsewhere in Revelation, there is reference to this, the Lamb's Book of Life, the, that lamb that was uh, slain, their names being written before the foundation of the world. That's the actual sense of the, of the Greek here. Well, um, a great many belonged to the church, were enrolled in its membership, perhaps by baptism. Its na their names were recorded by profession of faith, but they would not be found at last in that book. And... Jesus uh, reminds us that uh, even what one has may be taken away from him, but he who has will be given more. 
Well, in the same way, there is the promise that uh, those who have persevered, their names certainly will not be blotted out from the book of life. The result of this letter, by the way, was a happy result. We know that uh, perhaps some 50 years later, there was a thriving church there. In fact, we know one of its leaders by name, Melito, uh, a godly man. One of his contemporaries said of him after his death how he was a man full of the Holy Spirit, that he, quotes, sleeps in Sardis, awaiting the visitation from heaven on the day of resurrection. Tertullian wrote of his eloquence. Eusebius later mentions that he wrote some 18 books. Unfortunately, all of them are lost, but to, to this Sardis of Melito, we, we do have something important. Um, the very first list that we have of the Old Testament books, as we call them, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, our Old Testament, are, were written by Melito of Sardis. By the way, a list that did not include the apocryphal or deuterocanonical books, so-called. He wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. I bet he did, which would be fascinating to read if only we had it. Um, well, what would he have said in response to this letter to the church at Sardis? How much more we wish we knew of what happened when the church got this alarming letter and of the great turnaround and how this church, which he pastored for, for some 50 or 60 years after this letter was written, became so well-known and faithful and fruitful. The, the truth is the alarm clock woke them up. They didn't hit the pause too many times like I used to when I was a student, right? Uh, the snooze. The church woke. It did strengthen what remained. It was found in the generation to come, going from strength to strength. And that is the purpose of this alarming letter. The alarm clock doesn't have a very pleasant sound, does it? Okay, I don't think the alarm has a very pleasant sound. Maybe you have a nice ringtone on your phone. I don't know. Um, it's not supposed to be pleasant. It's supposed to wake you up. And that is the purpose of the letter. What is there for us? Surely we learn many things. We learn that the name Christian only properly describes those who are, in fact, alive. Alive in knowing God. Alive to the wonderful fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Alive to our future and our hope in the kingdom of God. And alive even to the works that God has laid before us to complete. Alive to the presence of Christ, so present that every day we walk with him. And the sad reality of the fact is the American Christianity, so-called, is becoming in the world at least more or less synonymous with nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, which is why we can have such a precipitous drop because there was, a, there was death and yet the, the person didn't know until he dropped. The biggest mission field in America is clearly nominal Christianity and that we need to recognize. Christ is clear that there is a vast gulf between those who claim to know him and those who do know him. And we can spend our years going to church and posting uh, Bible verses on social media and telling our kids to love God without the transforming power of Jesus Christ radically changing our lives. And we need to consider if we are just, well, as they say, talking the talk. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many 
wonderful works, and I'll, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You, you'll notice there's a big emphasis. In, you know, it's mentioned in every single letter. I, I know your works, right? A big emphasis here. So if you say, why is he talking about works so much? It's because that's what we're studying. Churches need to recognize that there's a, there's a temptation to become a kind of a social event where people enjoy a concert and receive a word of encouragement before they go back to work for the week. And the worship services tend to become more of a worship of self rather than of God in Christ. Um, individuals become preeminent. Their emotions rule. And there is a dying from the inside. This is not true Christianity, which calls for a wholehearted devotion and love of the Lord and denying of ourselves and even taking our cross that we might follow Jesus and personal pleasures that take a back seat to the will of our God. Uh, otherwise, the church may continue to meet and may have great buildings and even support, and yet uh, there's nothing there. I, I took a trip to Scotland, the Holy Land, you know, where I was so sad to see so many churches closed or perhaps uh, sharing a minister with another congregation, sometimes two congregations, in the Church of Scotland especially, you could always uh, tell those churches that were still being used for worship. But how could you tell them? They were black. I mean, blackened on the outside, their spires and so forth. You say, what? Um, you know, in the industrial days, the, the, the smoke from the cities would rise and settle on the church and the fact is, those that are still churches, they've, they've never had the money to clear off the blackness. It's a metaphor for the whole spiritual state of the country. In the Kirk especially, as they call the Church of Scotland, you can typically find, if you go on an hour for worship, only a small group of largely older folks scattered about the sanctuary that could hold hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and regularly did, morning and evening. It was easy to imagine the church as it must have been as we went to the Glasgow Cathedral, which had become a museum, literally. Most of those churches no longer exist or are soon to expire. The buildings, in some cases, have been closed and sold and turned into clubs or condominiums or raised to make way of some other sort of building. Uh, others are dead, though they still stand. And it's unspeakably sad. A landscape full of used-to-be churches. In, in my dad's lifetime, going from one of the most church-going places in the world to, well, areas of Glasgow and Edinburgh, some of the least in the world, right? Or at least in Europe, I should say. Well, how did it happen? How did it happen? You know the history, perhaps. I've explained it before. The people first lost spiritual life. A false gospel crept in, as we talked about this morning, and then the dead wood on the inside, though it held the tree for a little while, it, it rotted. And since the turn of the 20th century, each generation of the Kirk grew smaller and weaker. The Lord, for his part, was absolutely against nominal Christianity. He, he said to those who followed him, who followed him, who had the guts 
to be able to tell their family and friends and even their synagogue that they're following Jesus, no matter what it costs, right, to do that. He turned to the crowds and said, look, if anyone comes after me and doesn't hate father or mother, wife and children, brothers or sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And we may balk at such an approach. What, what kind of Christianity would this be to, to have the, the, the people that have taken the, the bold step in following Jesus to be told, compared to the love of their family, right? Their love for him must so far exceed that as though they hated all their relations, if only they could follow him. We instinctively want people to be comforted and to remove obstacles to their believing. But on so many occasions, Jesus made his followers decidedly uncomfortable and pointed out just how difficult it would be to follow him, what needed to take place if they were going to make it through that marathon. Well, in conclusion, at every point, at every hour, at every day, we are reminded of the need to have a living faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be making our deeds complete in the sight of our God, doing what we Christians know that we ought to do for the reasons that we ought to do them, whether in the privacy of our hearts or in the fellowship of the saints or in the world. There must be a deep, seared, seated sincerity. A sincerity, Baxter said, that is the great difference between hypocrites and Christians. Sincerity is in that which it consists as fencers on a stage differ from men fighting from their lives. So great is this difference that we speak about. They may be doing the same thing. They may have the same appearance, but the reality is completely different. Every day, we must awaken, wake up to this fact in a way that a Christian must do. The fact that it is possible for one's name uh, to uh, here be in danger, at least it seems, of blotting out, being blotted out of the book of life, well, that is supposed to make us very determined that ours will never be. And what is the result? Well, we will be walking with the Lord, dressed in white on a great day. And I tell you, you will never regret any alarm going off in your life, including this sermon, no matter how uncomfortable or unpalatable it may sound at the time. Jesus didn't write hard words without having a good purpose. And you will never regret any wearying efforts that was required of you to strengthen what remained, any vigilance with which you walked over your soul when you on that great day are walking with him in light. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would sanctify your people and that you would awaken every soul. We know what it is to be half asleep. We know sometimes that we are barely awake at all. And so we pray that with such an alarm that not only would we live, but that we would be able to arouse others from the stupor of slumber. We pray that you would awaken any here who have heard of an alarming, alarming judgment to come that they too would rise to life. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, it is written, and Christ will shine on you. May the brightness of his rising rouse us all to walk with him in white. We pray it for his sake.